This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. So we start a new series today, which is always exciting. We're going to spend the rest of the summer going through the book of Esther. And uh, we're just going to cover the first chapter today, so you're going to get the whole background. Normally, I kind of give the background, give the history, give the themes, and then we jump in. But I'm going to do something different today. I'm just going to read the first chapter, and then I'm going to walk back through it and kind of give the themes and uh, some of the important players. And just to give you a a heads up, uh, the most important player in, uh, well, that's in the text, the most important player in chapter one is the king, Ahasuerus. He will appear throughout the book. So if you're able to track with what he's doing, a lot of the other characters will never show up again in the book. They're not important, but he is. So here we go. Esther chapter one, verse one. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media, the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples that the prin- and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times? For this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same thing to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty." If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your illuminating grace as we enter into a study of this unique book in the Bible. We ask that you would open our eyes We ask that you would soften our hearts. We ask that you would open our ears to hear from you. We pray that we would see the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ as we study this book. We pray that the gospel would be real and rich to us in the midst of such a book, even as this. And we pray that your spirit would give us um, trust in you and reliance on you. I pray that as we study this book, you would banish the fears that cause us to to act in in so many uh, faithless ways. I pray that you would arrest fear, and I pray that you would give us faith in the ruling and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How in the world do we get a sermon about God in a chapter like this? This is a chapter about a pagan king and his advisors, and a pagan wife. There is no mention of God in the entire chapter. In fact, there is no mention of God in the entire book. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. It's going to be quite a summer. Every Sunday, we're going to come and read a book where God is never mentioned. Prayer is never mentioned. The law is never mentioned. Worship is never mentioned. Unlike all, most every other Old Testament book, there's no reference to the temple. There's no reference to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. There's no reference to the practices that made the, the Hebrew people unique, uh, like their dietary laws. In fact, they're probably broken. Like the, the call to never marry a non-Jew, which is clearly broken at the center of the whole story. Um, circumcision. Um, the, various, the various practices that made them separate from the nations around them, none of them are mentioned at all. It, 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 there's just nothing in the book that overtly communicates about God. It, it, it appears on the surface like an almost entirely secular story. And yet, I believe it's one of the most important books of the Old Testament for us to understand what it's like to live in the culture in which we find ourselves. And actually, if I could be more specific, uh, I think it's one of the best books in the entire Bible to address Christians in this season, in our history, in particular, in an election year. Uh, I don't ever go political from this pulpit, so relax. I'm not about to say something that you're going to, whoa, is he just endorsing? Absolutely not. That's not the play. The pulpit is a place to preach the gospel. But this book, I believe, uh, addresses evangelicals in the U.S. right now uh, almost like unlike any other book. And that's one of the reasons we're looking at it this summer. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through what we just read, which was a lot of names, uh, which is pretty confusing. I want to walk through that, look at what's going on, and then I want to close by talking about how I believe this book and the themes of it address us right now as a church and as Christians uh, in our culture. And uh, then I want to kind of foreshadow what's coming in the book, or not foreshadow, it kind of explain what's coming in the book so that we'll be able to track in the weeks to come. Okay, the the first chapter, as I mentioned, is about this king named Ahasuerus. And he's the only guy that you need to know because in the future chapters, and there's 10 chapters, none of these other people will be mentioned. 
It's so interesting the way the book starts out. It's just this whole picture of something that has no relevance to the rest of the book. One commentator said it's very much like a James Bond movie where the opening scene is this action sequence where crazy things are happening and explosions and car chases, and then it goes into the movie, and none of the movie has anything to do with that opening scene. But the opening scene serves this purpose. It tells you that James Bond can get out of any situation, that he's indestructible, and that he's just generally an amazing individual. And so then you see him with that in mind for the rest of the movie. In this case, we learn some things about King Ahasuerus that we will see through the rest of the book. First of all, he's very wealthy. Second of all, he's very powerful. Third of all, he does what people tell him to do, specifically his advisors. And we're going to see that through the whole book. Great wealth, great power, and someone who does what his advisors tell us. That's what comes out in this first chapter that we're going to see throughout the rest of the book. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about this guy who comes out in a James Bond opening at this huge party and see what it, what it uh, will connect to the rest of the story. King Ahasuerus reigned over the Persian Empire in 486 BC to place him in history. And uh, he, the Persian Empire at this point, has replaced Babylon. Uh, about 100 years before this, uh, Babylon had taken Israel captive, and it's called the Babylonian captivity. The people of God lived um, uh, under Babylonian captivity. They were exiled. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed, and they were in exile. Well, 50 years before what we're reading right here, 50 years before this, King Cyrus lets all of the Israelites go back to Jerusalem. He releases them from captivity. He lets them go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and to rebuild their temple. Everybody didn't go, however. And so now we're in the Persian Empire. Persia has knocked off Babylon. They are the ruler du jour. They are ruling the world at this point. So the, the, the people who didn't go back to Jerusalem are now under, not Babylonian, but Persian rule. And they're under this guy, King Ahasuerus. So we have, uh, we have Jews who have not returned to their homeland, but have remained in exile. They have largely adapted, they have largely assimilated into a pagan culture. So that's where we are uh, when we come up on this guy, uh, Ahasuerus. Now he is significant. He reigns from India to Ethiopia. Uh, If you look at a map, you will see that is a significant section of real estate. He has 127 provinces that are under him. Persia has four capital cities. They don't even have a single capital. It's so broad, so vast. They have four capital cities. One of them is Susa. That's where he is here. It's kind of on the border between modern day Iran and Iraq in the Middle East. So this is the place where he, where he, he winters in this, in this home. And this is the place where he sort of legislates, makes edicts uh, from, like we see here, from his home in Susa. He is ruling over the most, impo- most powerful empire in the world. That's what we know. He's, he rules over the most powerful empire in the world. And the opening scene is him throwing a feast. He invites all the army. He invites, uh, sells, uh, verse uh, four says, or I'm sorry, verse three says, uh, all the governors, all the nobles, everyone that ruled over a province, he brings them together for a feast. The word translated feast is a word that's related to drinking. So this is largely a drinking party. And he calls them to a feast for 180 days. That's six months. This guy is so powerful, so wealthy, so extravagant, he throws a six-month party. Now, probably all of these people weren't there the whole time. Probably the army is not on leave drinking for six months. These people probably all rotated in. But at any rate, it's a six-month party. And why did he throw a party for all these people? To honor them for their service, to say, thank you for being a governor? No. Here's why he threw a party. Verse 4 while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. He says, come to a party in my honor. 
I'm going to show you how great I am through pomp, through party, through extravagance, through wealth. For six months, I'm going to show you how great I am by throwing this hedonistic feast for everyone who will come. It's about his glory, incredible wealth, incredible power, and he wants to display all of his riches and all of his glory for all to see. It's not hidden. It's not modest. It's not false humility. It's everybody come literally and see how great I am. That's what he's saying. For his pomp and his power and his greatness, it's very important that you see how magnificent and how glorious and how powerful Ahasuerus is in the first half of the chapter to be stunned by the second half of the chapter. So he throws this six-month party. After it's over, he throws another party. And this isn't for the noblemen and for the army and for the governors. This is for everybody in Susa. So he throws a one-week party for everyone that lives in the capital city. He invites them all, verse 5, great and small, uh, to his garden palace. And his wife, Queen Vashti, has a party at the exact same time. So he's got all the guys there, and they're feasting again, word for drinking. They are drinking uh, again. And, And the description here of his garden is amazing. It's got fine linen. It's got marble pillars. It's got couches of gold and silver. He invites all the dudes in the city come to this male party that he's having and they're sitting on gold and silver couches and even the ground is rich. There is this mosaic on the ground it says that there's a pavement that includes marble and precious stones. So they're even walking on jeweled sidewalks or roadways or whatever it is. I mean, it's extravagant. And then it says that everybody is drinking out of golden vessels of different kinds. So this isn't stock. Everybody get your, you know, your, your red paper cup deal and go in. And this isn't some, some college kind of frat keg party. This is royal wine. It says flowing extravagantly lavished according, the wine is lavished according to the bounty of king. So this is very quality wine that is poured in. Everybody's drinking out of a golden goblet and they're different. So they're not mass produced. They're like works of art. They're created uh, as these unique golden vessels and everybody is drinking. And then it says that that he does this this really unusual statement in verse 8. He makes this edict that there is no no compulsion. Drinking was according to the sea. There is no compulsion. This is the first crack we get into this king and realize his power is questionable. Because if you have to make a rule about drinking, that doesn't show that you have great power. That probably shows that you have little power. And he makes this sort of rule that there's no compulsion. We don't know exactly what that means. It may be that every time the king drank, it was like a drinking game. Every time the king drinks, everybody takes a drink. It could have been that Or it just could be that he wants some people, anybody who wants to pass can pass. We don't know. But he makes a rule that says everybody didn't have to drink all the time. Just that kind of detail. He has to legislate those kind of details to maintain order and to maintain control. So what happens next? Well, we find out Vashti is having a party for the ladies as well. And uh, he is drinking with all of these guys. There's, he's displaying great wealth, great abundance, great indulgence, great power. And then all of a sudden he decides, I will not only display my wealth, I will display my wife. And so he sends eunuchs. Eunuchs play a key part in this. Eunuchs are castrated men that worked with the king's harem, which is a large number of women that he slept with because you could trust eunuchs who were castrated. They weren't a danger to the women. And so he, these eunuchs worked closely with him as administrators, also managing his harem, which we'll see next week. So he sends these eunuchs and they say, go bring the queen. Why? Well, he wants to bring the queen. First of all, he's drunk. Verse 10 says, when his heart is merry with wine, he tells the eunuch. So he's drunk. After seven days of drinking, he tells the eunuchs, go get my wife and bring her out here. I want to display her. Why? Because she, verse 8, or verse 11, I want to display her for all the peoples and all the princes to see her beauty for she's lovely to look at. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to bring my wife in to a room full of men. No, not a room full, a garden full, a city full of men that have been drinking for seven days. And I want to everyone to get a look at her. 
I'm going to not only show you my great wealth, I'm not only going to show you bejeweled streets, I'm not only going to show you golden goblets and wine freely flowing, I'm going to show you my trophy wife. I'm going to display her because she is very good to look at. Well, they go and deliver the message to Vashti. And as we might say, mom, I ain't going to have none of that. (laughs) She refuses. She refuses to come and be on display, to be an object. Like all of his marble pillars and his roads and his wine. She's not going to be an object before a drunken group of men who are not respecting her in the least, and come and, and perform, be on display, have everybody do cat calls and everything. She's not going to have any part of that. And so she appropriately refuses. Well, he goes from Mary to, it says he is burning with rage. He goes from drunken happiness to a drunken rage. He is enraged, his anger burns within him, verse 12. Then the king said to the wise man who knew the times, basically, what do we do? So here's what's so amazing about this powerful man and his wise counselors that he goes to get legal advice from. I mean, he takes a domestic issue and he ratches it up into a matter where we've got to get counsel, we've got to get legal advice, what should happen to her? I mean, this is a marital dispute. All that had to happen was for this guy to sober up, go to his wife, apologize, be reconciled, and none of us are reading this book 2,500 years later. But he's a fool. And so what he does is he goes and gets his drunken counselors, and they all decide, what should we do? What legally should happen to Queen Vashti? And so then what's amazing is this guy, Mimukin, uh, who is one of the counselors, he stands up and he asks, the king asks for legal advice. That's what he asked for. According to the law, verse 15, what is to be done because she did not perform the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? He asks for legal advice, and Mamukin stands up and doesn't give legal advice. He starts speaking about personal fear. He's saying, whoa, everybody is going to hear about this, and all the women are going to respond. He says, all the nobles' women are going to do the same thing. What he's saying is, I got a wife at home, and if she hears that Vashti didn't do what the king said, I'm going to have heck to pay at home as well because my wife's going to start imitating Vashti. As a matter of fact, it's going to happen all over the kingdom. He says all the women are going to hear about this and they're all going to say, he says they will quote, well, Vashti didn't, stand, uh, didn't do what her husband said. Why do I need to do what you said? So he's saying we are going to have disorder crazy. Here's how he describes it. There will be contempt and wrath in plenty. I love the way ESV translates that. He says, what's going to happen is chaos. All the women are going to get out of control. They're all going to say, I'm not doing what you said. Look what they're going to all model after the queen. Again, this is becoming overblown in some huge matter of domestic disturbance and an upheaval of social order. And we've got to get legal counsel over just saying, can she come to the party? And she says, no, it is blown entirely out of proportion. They misjudge the problem and then they offer a crazy solution. Here's what Mimukin says. Okay, she's out. He says, okay, if she won't come, let it be known by edict that Queen Vashti will never come before King Ahasuerus again. It will never, she will never happen again. She will never come before him again. And then... The second part is, let, uh, verse 20, uh, oh, I'm sorry, verse yeah, 20. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it's vast, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. So here's what we're going to do. When, when she's fired, let everybody know about that. Use her as an example. Let her, everybody know that she was dismissed. She can't come before the king anymore. Find, we're going to find a new queen who's better than she is, is what it says. And then all, we're going to make an edict that all the women will uh, respond, respect, obey their husbands. That's what they decide to do. 
it's very overblown. It's very crazy. They're gonna, they go to such lengths. They're gonna, there's 127 provinces with different languages. They're going to send out on horse to every, every province, translated in their own language, it says, uh, this edict to explain to everyone. So how do we apply a chapter like this, which has nothing to do with God on the surface? How do we take this chapter uh, in, in the context of the overall story and apply it to our lives? Well, here's the first idea, the first truth, is that the book of Esther shows us that God's people should not fear the rulers of this world. The next chapter, we're going to meet Esther and we're going to meet her cousin Mordecai, who are Jews God's people living in this pagan land. And the story will take off with her from there. But one of the reasons for this first chapter is to show God's people that there is no need to fear, and certainly in any ultimate sense, the rulers of this world. And that's going to come through in various points in this this book. Because the book teaches us that the most powerful man on the world, really in the world, really isn't that powerful. That the man who had an enormous kingdom and controls huge parts of the civilized world, a man who has vast wealth, ultimate power, he's dictating drinking practices at a feast, but he can't even get his wife to attend the party. That, that's, that's part of the revelation of the chapter uh, of the first chapter. It, it's, the, the book uses satire throughout, and this first chapter is a satire. Hebrews would have let, read this, and as you did, as we talked about a little bit, they would have laughed. It's a laughable chapter. Now, a tyrant who oppresses people, is, oppressed people is not funny. Uh, suffering people is not humorous. But tyrants who think they can have their way and do whatever they want, that's a joke. That's an absolute joke. And we see it through here. When we read about King Ahasuerus, we don't feel intimidated. We feel pity. It's sad. It's sad that a marital disagreement leads to such foolishness and becomes a national affair. That there must be an edict stating that all men must be masters of their home. Here's the satire. Here's the irony of the chapter. That they send out a memo, an edict that says... Every man must be the master of his own household. You must control your wives, but the king can't control his. That's the irony of the situation. That's the humor of the great man with great power who can't even reign and rule in his own house, but is going to legislate how everyone else should live in their house. It's ironic, isn't it? Another irony is this. They're concerned that everyone will find out. When he asks for legal advice, Mimukin says, listen, we don't want all the ladies to find out about this. So what do they do? They send men on horses to every province to tell every lady in the land what happened. It's utter foolishness. They go out. We could have just said, let's make this a quiet thing. He could have gone to his advisors and said, oh, yeah, you know, this will blow over. We're probably not thinking straight. We'll sober up. This will blow over. And it's done. But no, they're going to go tell every woman, guess what Vashti did? She's no longer your queen because she did this. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, wow. Well, at least she stood up. I mean, that's kind of heroic. She's kind of a martyr for the cause. She's kind of like, I don't know, an, uh, uh, like someone who was a martyr for the feminist cause where the ladies, maybe they're going to jump up and say, yes, great. It could have just the opposite effect. If she'll go down, I'll go down as well. She could ennoble them to, uh, to the behavior that they want to avoid. So, so here's what's happening. They're going out and announcing what they want to be a secret not really that powerful, not really that wise. They come off as drunken, incompetent fools, the most powerful man in the world and his advisors. David Firth in a commentary on Esther says, God is never mentioned, but by showing the futility of such grandiose claims of human power, it opens up the question of where power really lies. If the greatest human power turns out to be a charade, then already there is a hint that real power lies elsewhere. That's chapter one. The greatest human power turns out to be a charade. It's Oz. It's a man behind a curtain. He doesn't have the power he claims to have. Ask his wife. And so if we read that the most powerful man in the world lacks power, there's instantly an implication that power must lie somewhere else. 
And that will come through the rest of the book. Anyone that tries to challenge God in his throne, anyone that tries to rule apart from God is foolish, and it is a laughable matter. Again, suffering people is never laughable. But foolhardy buffoons who claim such pomp and grandiose power, it's laughable. Do you know that's how God responds? Now, he responds with judgment. He responds in a number of different ways. But Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That means ridicule and mockery. The Bible teaches that when men or women seek to rule and put out their chest like they are powerful and mighty and controlling. Do you know what God does? He doesn't wring his hands. He doesn't worry. He laughs in ridicule because who in the world do they think that they are? There is no place for the people of God to ultimately fear the, rule, the, the rulers of the world. We are rather, and this would be the second point, we are to trust that God is in control. The book of Esther not only teaches us not to fear human powers in an, in an ultimate sense, but that, we, but, but, but that we are to trust that God is in control. God is never mentioned in the book, yet he is orchestrating his will through the entire book. God is working, we're calling the series The Invisible Hand. God is working through his invisible hand throughout the entire story. So here's, here's what chapter one leaves us with. Hmm. Why, why does Ahasuerus call for his wife? Why does she refuse? Why do the wise men give such counsel that Vashti is to be banned and there is to be a new queen? All of this is so that God can open the door for a young Jewish girl to come in the next chapter named Esther and become queen. For a woman from God's covenant people to then become queen of this pagan nation. Because what's going to happen in a few chapters is there's going to be a dictate, an edict of genocide. All of the Jews are to be slaughtered by Persian authority. All of the Jews are to be slaughtered. But what God has done with all that's happened in chapter one is he has a woman in authority. He has a new queen married to this king. He has orchestrated things such that God's people will be preserved. See, we can trust God that no matter what happens around us, he will always preserve his people. That's the point of the story. He will always preserve his people. We need to have far more trust in God than we ever have fear of any human ruler. Esther is a narrative theology. It's a story that illustrates a verse in Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. You know how a stream will move this way and that way? Maybe as it goes down a mountain, it'll cut in and cut out. He says, the, the proverb says, the stream is ju it's just water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it over here, and then he can turn it there. He can turn it there. Just as the Lord could do that, that's what he does with the king heart, king's heart. Does the king exercise free will? Yes. Does the Lord exercise his will? Yes. The Lord's will is greater than the king's will. The Lord works through the king. And because God ultimately rules, we can trust rather than fear. Theologian G.C. Burkhauer said the following, in no phase of the world's history is the rule of God in danger. I'm going to say that again. In no phase of the world's history is the rule of God in danger. This is going to look ominous. When we get on and they're, when we find out they're going to kill all the Jews, it looks ominous. God's rule is never for a minute in danger. And we're shown that when we look at the kind of rulers that oppose him and their weakness, their ignorance, their limitations. And while they don't even see it, God is setting up in the background 
protection for his people. I, I think this is particularly timely for us as Christians in the U.S. If uh, I don't claim to be an expert on reading the evangelical church in the U.S. or being able to sort of analyze and say exactly what our strengths and weaknesses are. But if there's one word that I think describes much of the evangelical church right now, it's the word fear. It's the word fear. And, and it's on a scale. It's on a, it's on a spectrum. From mild anxiety on one end, people are just anxious. What's going to happen in our country? What's going to happen? Mild anxiety on one end to utter panic on the other end where people make all kinds of irrational decisions and stuff based on fear. Now, there's no doubt we are in a time of cultural and perhaps political change. No doubt that there's no doubt that we are in a time when the church should be praying for our nation, for our leaders. No doubt. I am not saying that we are not in serious times, but I am saying that the Bible calls the people of God to always be absolutely confident that his reign and his rule is never being challenged and he will always protect his people. That's what's going to happen in Esther. And the forces against God's people in Esther are so, so exponentially beyond anything that we know in this country. It's not even, it's silly for me to even bring our situation in because this is so much more ominous and God delivers his people. But I I find, uh, and I can relate to the fear. I can relate to what's going to happen in our country. I, I can relate to that. And, and as I hear Christians, this is, this is what I hear, that there, there's a concern that bad things are afoot. You know, what's going to happen with our election? What's going to happen? Is, is one of two presumptive nominees going to win? Is there going to be someone come dashing in from the outside that we don't know about that's going to win uh, some third party? What, what's gonna, what is going to happen? And there, there can be fears about what's going to happen based on any kind of election results or people are looking to the forward and what's it going to be like? Will there be greater division post-election in our country? We are a divided country. We're divided religiously. We're divided by worldview. We're divided racially. Is is we going to experience more division? Uh, Will there be an increase in racism and racial strife in this country? Will we shut out refugees who need help? Will the rights of the unborn be further ignored? Will religious liberty be eroded? Will the economy tank? Will Christians experience persecution? Will terrorism increase? Will we end up somehow in a war of some sort? We are, we're certainly in a time of uncertainty, and I don't mean to minimize the season, but I do want to say definitively what you read on every page of the scripture, God is on the throne. And he's not the least bit intimidated by any individual, any political party, any political special interest group. He's not intimidated by any of it. He's not limited in what he can do for his people uh, in any society. He's He's going to protect his people here and lead them to thrive in an absolute pagan society. Fifty years before in the, in the captivity, in, in Ezra 1.1, it says God stirred or God moved the heart of Cyrus to tell all the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. I mean, you've got all these people in your captivity, but God said, oh, I'm going to turn his heart. Okay, everybody can go home. What? Because Cyrus doesn't rule. God rules. And so that doesn't, I'm not advocating a lack of participation in the political process or a lack of interest in the political process. I'm advocating against sinful fear. And it is sinful to distrust the Lord, to act as if he is not on the throne and to distrust the Lord is sinful. It is to not believe God is who he says he is. Let me make a practical challenge to you. If you are someone who is a news junkie, particularly a political news junkie, I want to challenge you, especially if you find yourself worried and anxious. I want you to challenge you to consider, first of all, your social media consumption 
And, and let me offer a pro tip for you. Every time somebody puts a Facebook link to an article about this candidate or that thing or the terror or what bad thing's going to happen or how everything's going down the tubes, right, you don't have to click on it. <laughs> you, you don't have to go click and read it. Every time somebody puts something up on Twitter about breaking news, I've got to know, I've got to know. You don't have to know. You really don't. You have to know like what time's dinner. That's all you really need to know this afternoon. (laughs) Where's my Bible and what time's dinner? Everything else will be taken care of. You You don't have to go there. If you are someone who has to hear, did you hear, did you hear, do you know, do you know the latest You listen to political talk radio. You read political blogs with social political commentators who are never held to the accuracy of their predictions. They're all forgotten. Everybody panics. And a year later, you go, that didn't even happen. But but you you read blogs. You read, three of you read newspapers. I don't even know if they exist anymore. Blogs. If you watch political TV news commentary, and then you find yourself having trouble sleep. You find yourself thinking about it. You find yourself, comp- you're, I'm in compulsion. I got to find the next thing. Turn it off. And here's the deal. If you're spending more time listening to who's going to rule in this country next, and you're not spending an equal or more amount of time reading about who rules the universe, you will be given to fear. I don't want to be legalistic here at all. I'm very opposed to that. But I appreciate what I heard one Christian leader says. It says, in the morning, I never, I never read blogs or news or any, the news, the newspaper, anything. I never read it until I've read the Bible first. Because I want a clear picture of who rules and reigns. Because all day long, I'll be berated by temptation that God's not on the throne, that something's bad's going to happen, that what about this and what about that? If I am not clear who's really ruling and reigning. And Esther's going to show us that. Esther's going to pull back the curtain and show all humanistic power apart from God is a charade. He rules. He reigns. He will have his day. Be active. Do what you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. But trust God. I I saw a Christian theologian on, speaking of Twitter, speaking of social media, uh, uh, but I didn't click. Uh, I... (laughs) I, I saw a, uh, a social, uh, I mean, I saw a theologian that I really love and respect and read his work in the UK. I have no idea what his opinion is uh, about uh, Brexit. I have no idea what he thought about it. He didn't state his view about should they stay or should they go. Um, he just simply the next morning tweeted these words, above all else, God rules. Oh, that's it. That's good. I, I, I think I can go to bed at night knowing that. I'm not saying put your head in the sand. I'm not saying be ignorant of the times. But I am saying that if your heart is drawn in to, to fear instead of trust in the Lord, monitor the consumption of what's going into your mind and what's going into your heart. And make sure that you're feeding your soul with what we're studying this summer. Lastly, the book of Esther teaches us to discern God's providence. God's providence is his work, his sustaining grace, his work behind the scenes, his work to protect his people. So how can we be helped by a book that never mentions God's direct involvement in life, God's overt involvement in life? How can we help by that? Esther's realistic. That's how most of us live our lives every day. There are occasions in the Bible when God parts the Red Sea. And when he raises the son of God out of the grave with resurrection power. But those aren't the normal activities of God. Physically parting seas with dramatic miracles is not what he does day in and day out. God doesn't rule the universe through miraculous things like that all the time. God is working through very normal things. Things that you would look at and go, Well, I don't know what the significance of that is, but God is at work. And that's what he does for Esther and Mordecai, as we'll see in the next chapter, these Jews who live in the Persian Persian Empire in exile. They see a normal world around them. They see happenings around them. But what we're going to see is that God is at work 
in dramatic ways, but they are hidden. They look normal. You, you, you don't always know what God is up to. You have to wait and see what the Lord is doing. See, some things that seem very small, like a deposed queen. Okay, if I'm a Jew in Persia, I go Vashti or Hashti. It doesn't matter to me who's the queen. It looks like a very small thing. It's huge because God is about to move uh, this young girl into the, the palace and protect his people down the road. Things that seem huge. There's an edict. All Jews will be killed in 11 months. That's what we're coming to. All Jews will be killed. Wasn't significant at all. God totally overturned it, killed the guy that made the edict. Done. Okay, now we're protecting all the people. Oh, things that appear huge can be overturned like that. Things that appear, well, that's normal. Headlines today, new queen, I don't care. Next. And that's significant. We, we, we often can't read providence until in reverse, through the rearview mirror, we see how God is at work. But Esther teaches us that God is always at work. And what he's doing, I, I've spoken macro. What he does macro, he also does micro in your life. Esther is a book that fleshes out, it's a narrative history, narrative theology of Romans 8.28. This is what Paul writes to the Christians in Rome. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Esther is a book where God is working all things together for good. It's about his hidden hand at work. He doesn't have to be mentioned to, to be clear that he is at work. And to know that he's at work in all things brings us not only deals with fears about things that are big and are out there, but knowing he's at work also brings comfort in the midst of confusing situations in our lives. Some of us have a, maybe a confusing, a, a, maybe even a hopeless medical diagnosis. Some of us have a loved one that we love that appears to be drifting away from the faith. And we're wondering, God, what are you doing? Some of us will go into our work tomorrow in a very uncertain situation that maybe there's going to be some budget cuts and maybe you're going to lose your job or be demoted in some way. And so you are, you are uncertain about how you're going to have an income. That's scary. But we know that God works all things together for good for his people, for those who love him. Maybe you're in the midst of a, a family quarrel that you can see no way out. It looks like our family, we're separated permanently. It doesn't look like we're ever going to be able to work this out. God can be work. You don't know who's God sending to talk to that family member on the other side uh, of the quarrel right now. You don't know. You don't know what, what, what the Lord is orchestrating, what, what he's doing in a person's heart, what he's doing in a person's mind. See, the point of Proverbs 21.1 is that the Lord holds the king's heart in his hand and he can turn it however he wants. The point is the king's the most powerful guy in the land. So if he can do that with the most powerful person, how much more can he do that with people of less power? God can control and move and adjust anything and anyone. Maybe you have a conflict with a neighbor. God can work that out. Maybe you have a sense of loneliness or depression that you're battling right now. Somehow God works those situations. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm not saying just have faith. I'm not saying that it's not very difficult, excruciating, but God works in those situations. Maybe you're having financial stress. See, Esther, the book of Esther teaches us that God is at work all around in hidden ways. He's even using unbelievers for the good of his people. He's using compromised believers. We'll see that next week. I don't think Esther's a hero. Esther is not the hero of the book of Esther. God is the hero of the book of Esther. It's not a book about Esther. She's even morally compromised. We'll see next week. It's not a book about her. It's a book about God. He is the one at work in the hidden ways, not her, though she does some heroic things for sure, puts her life on the line. She's respectable for sure, but it's not about her. It's about God. And it's not about this person or that person in your life. It's not about this circumstance or that circumstance. It's about God bringing his will to bear to fashion you into the place he wants you to be. In a commentary, um, which we have a couple books. I'll, I'll present these next week to you. We, there's already some out there. We'll have some more next week um, on the book of Esther. 
Here's a story that I think is very helpful that I'll close with. It just helps us to consider seeing God at work in our lives, not to fear earthly rulers, to trust that God is in control, and to keep our eyes open in faith, trusting that he's working all situations for our good as believers, for the church, for his people. One of Rembrandt's most famous paintings is The Night Watch. It hangs in a museum in Amsterdam. In fact, the top floor of the museum is built with a long corridor that leads the visitor into a room at the end where the night watch hangs, almost as if enthroned in the museum. The painting is enormous, 13 feet by 16 feet, and many gather to admire it. Imagine walking into the room and standing behind two art lovers having a conversation. One is a student and the other is the much older teacher. After admiring the painting for a while, the teacher asked the student to find Rembrandt in the painting. The student naturally looks in the corners and discovers there's no signature. Next, he begins to look at the faces. You see, Rembrandt was known for painting his own face into paintings. But to the student's disappointment, he cannot recognize Rembrandt's face in any of the characters in the painting. He continues looking closer at the details of the painting. Perhaps there is some clue, some way that Rembrandt has visibly put himself in the painting. After some time, the exasperated student turns to his teachers and said, I've looked everywhere to his teacher. I've looked everywhere in this painting and nowhere do I see him. Continuing to stare admiringly at the painting, the teacher says softly, you look for a signature, but I see the subtlety of artistic style. You look at the faces, but I see the character of the brush strokes. And that is why you look at the painting and conclude the artist is nowhere. And that is why I look at the painting and see the artist everywhere. The implication is obvious. We want the Lord to open our eyes to see him all at, all at work all around us in our daily life, in our job, in our family, in our church life, in our culture, in our political situation. Trusting the Lord to have his way among his people, to work in our individual lives and to preserve and to more than preserve, to cause his people to flourish that this might be a day where the light of the gospel would shine brighter than ever in a dark world all around. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.